So I always have some reluctance to begin because once I begin, I have to continue. <laughs> and God knows how many talks this series will contain. I don't know. I, I never really know. We just go until it seems depleted. But I'm actually real uh, excited about this one uh, because it's on the fundamentals. And therefore, everyone should feel included. Everyone should feel like some part of the talk resonates where whatever their practice may be or however sophisticated or experienced they are within their practice, that some part of the talk should resonate. And uh, I want to sort of lead in uh, to the, these fundamentals <coughs> uh, with a couple of remarks. One is on, in terms of how we uh, make the Dharma very complex, something I've, a theme I've talked about before, but I'd just like to uh, elaborate on it a little more. Uh, the mind just loves the intricacies, loves making it more than what it is, making it, separating it out, looking at things uh, and having a ponderance and an intricacy like a, you have the uh, main uh, root system of a, of a plant and then those root systems go on to finer and finer root systems. And so it gets so fine and so complex down there that you forget where you started from, the basics, the fundamental, what holds this plant to the ground? What grounds it? You can find uh, as much complexity within the Dharma as you like, but I would prefer that we go straight to what it is that we're here and be fed from the main root system. And so I think the fundamentals are an encouragement and a pointing and a focus on just that very thing. What often substitutes in Dharma practice for complexity is subtlety. Because the mind has an enormous richness in being able to fine tune its perception, uh, somewhat analogous to a microscope going from 50 power to 100 power to 500 power to and on, so too as our mind steadies itself, it has that ability to look at the nature of sensation or experience and to see into the vast subtlety of it. But let me say that subtlety is still form, is still appearances within form. And it doesn't need our 600th power scopic perception to be able to see the truths of life, this, the fundamental truths that are here. Uh, we need to have some stability of consciousness in order to hold our attention steady enough to see what's in front of our eyes, but we don't need to overpower the system with more and more subtlety so that we can see the refined and intricate patterns around each and everything. Somehow many of us get caught into that loop and we think that the more subtle we feel, sense and, uh, and observe, that at some point there's going to be this this moment in which experience will take us, what, out of experience? I'm not sure what, how it completes itself on the journey of awakening, how subtlety will complete itself. That's never been fully and adequately explained to me. Much more important is to see how we distort perception, not the subtlety from, from which our perception can it can be focused, but rather what, how is it that we're f distorting the perception we do see, whether it's at one power or a hundredth power. That's what we're interested in here. And that requires a different shifting of priorities or practice, the direction, intentionality within practice. And all of this is what I will encourage uh, in this series for us to land on and to push forward and to direct our practice with. Now, the subtlety, the fundamentals, I mean, some of you who have decades in meditation think, oh, well, this is going to be a, a series of trivial facts, right? Long since I have known this. Well, nonsense to your long sense of having known it. There is no trivial fact in Dharma. 
There's no trivial truth in Dharma. In fact, any truth can take you all the way if you give it the focus it deserves. But many of us who have, are familiar with the topics that I'll be talking about, not only tonight, but in the course of this series, will have some familiarity with that topic. In fact, quite likely you'll have some familiarity with all the different uh, themes. <clears throat> and what has happened in the course of our practice is that we've developed a, a kind of um, partial understanding of that principle or that fundamental. And then we have sort of rested our practice kind of philosophically on that principle and never looked at it again, never dusted it off, never looked or encouraged a deeper understanding back into what it is that we think we already know. And because of that, we get frozen uh, in our perspective of what the fundamental is, what it's about, and where eventually it can take us if we have the intention to go deeply into it. So I'm hoping that this series allows us to rediscover why it is that we're doing what we're doing. And for those that may be confused about what you are doing, hopefully this series will make it very clear as to why we're doing what we're doing and line us all up so that we are uh, free to engage our practice full-heartedly without all the confusion of different systems and different things, or should I do it this way or that? You'll know what you need to do. You'll know what will drive you. And, uh, and you'll have the explanation that you need. And finally, the last lead-in I want to talk about is my own experience in discovering the fundamentals. As I mentioned last week, uh, for many, the first years of my practice, I just pretty much uh, followed what other people were telling me to do. I was, uh, I was too de dependent upon others' authority for what they were seeing and not dependent upon enough of my authority for seeing directly. And so uh, that became real obvious to me when I overextended myself in a particular tradition and it really damaged and scarred, psychically scarred myself. And what happened was that there was an internal reaction to that scarring and I said, you know, I don't, I don't want this thing to be dependent anymore. I don't know whether I'm up to the task of being able to discover what the Dharma is about, but I'm not going to keep doing what I've been doing and been de being dependent upon others to tell me that because it's gotten me nowhere. And I was at least honest enough to admit that it had gotten me nowhere. And then I could see whether inside of me was, was sufficient resources to really glean the Dharma forth in ways that I perhaps hadn't until then. And so I just looked at some very basic ways that I had been taught and trained. And I wanted to understand why, why is it that that's the way I need to, to focus? Why is it that I need to be, say, non-judgmental as opposed to judgmental in my practice? What, what does that, how does that fit into the whole embrace of the Dharma? We all know non-judgmental awareness, but what is that? What, why? Why? I judged my whole life. It seemed to work. Why did I suddenly have to, st I mean, what's, how does the, what's that in the context of the Dharma? You see what I'm saying? I didn't know that. And so this is what I mean by fundamentals. This is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to know for ourselves. Now, it's not good enough to have a philosophy about these fundamentals. You know, that when we have only realized them partially, we'll have a partial realization and a partial philosophy. And so we'll get so close to it, but then like impermanence, the constant theme of impermanence that permeates this tradition. Most of us have some familiarity in our practice with everything being impermanent. It's also kind of, we use it as kind of a philosophy to sort of take the edge off things. When things get bad, well, 
This too will pass, we say philosophically. And that's not good enough. It's not good enough to have a philosophical uh, view and intention of life because it keeps us buffered from the depth of what impermanence really means. And so my encouragement all along the way here is going to be to really realize these truths and not to stop until we feel they're sunk as deeply as they can go at this particular time in our, in our meditation. And you'll find that as the meditation proceeds uh, over time, that your ability to take these fundamental truths deeper and deeper into yourself will be a part of that process. So what am I going to talk about tonight? Tonight I'm going to talk about denial. And my main theme is denial, but I'm going to link it to death. Why would I link denial to death? Well, that should be obvious to you. <laughs> because it's the main subject in which we all have some denial. Uh, so I'm going to use that more as an example of denial than a main talk around death and dying. And I think... Uh, what we want to do is uh, first understand that denial is the basis of what? What is, what is denial? Denial is saying, I don't want to see the facts. Right? Now we'll get to why it is that we have come to that conclusion, but let's just, let's just look at this in terms of a dar the Dharma. If there is denial working in us, and let us not pretend that, they're, that we're clean, Okay. It's amazing to me how resourceful we are in this defense mechanism. And if you'd like to have a private interview where I'd show you that, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> but believe me, it's in all of us. And it's, it's a simple, uh, basic defense against the Dharma. Because what is the Dharma? It's facing facts. I mean, if it can be said simply, that's what the Dharma is, is it not? Being willing to look at whatever it is that's arising within us without distorting what's arising within us. Why would we distort? Because we don't like its per present configuration, which is denial. So denial is the active assertion to try to be unconscious. Right? Now, dharma is the movement to try to be conscious. So this is a fundamental defense mechanism that we need to know about. Not partially, not a little bit, but we need to know about it intimately. We need to bring this sense of denial into our life and begin to have it touch us to see where it is that we are still in denial in various parts of ourselves. And I'll give you a good solid hint. <laughs> Wherever you're reacting, that's where you're also denying. In fact, you can often equate the truth of what you say to someone as to how much they react to what you're saying. Right? Because if it weren't true, why would you react at all? But it's because that truth has been has surfaced and they don't want to see it that there is this contraction and reactivity to it. Now that doesn't mean that you go up and forcefully force everyone to own their denial, right? <laughs> so I was on the phone to a very good friend, he's a, one of the oldest, I've known him since uh, he, we were in third grade together. And uh, he's, he's just taken a, his journey is more conservative. <laughs> and, <laughs> but he's still willing to talk to me. <laughs> and and so we were just on the phone and I was you know I was taught he was he lives in Wisconsin and it's like 60 degrees in Wisconsin and I'm saying don't you think there's something wrong with in January being 60 degrees and he's nothing's wrong I said well have what, what do you know about global warming <laughs> and there's this big upheaval on the other side of the phone and and I I just said, well, look at your reaction. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I just hope he's not listening to this tape. <laughs> so, I mean, I, 
I mean, I've known him over 50 years. And so I called him back. <laughs> I said, okay, we won't talk about that. I, 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 you know, but so that was, you know, that no matter how well or how intimately we might know someone, there is an edge in which that relationship closes down if we touch upon something sensitive. Now, it's just so, so happens that global warming to me is as important as death and dying because I think it's equivalent. And I never lose the opportunity to try to bring us into some kind of clarity of consciousness about the fact that it's occurring. Just the realization of that will then create the actions necessary for its resolution. But denial is what's keeping us from, from the solutions that are obvious uh, and what we need to do. And yes, it will mean that there will be a change of lifestyle. And that's why we deny. We don't want to change our storyline. Denial, and this is, gets really into the heart of why we do it. You see, we have a, we have a storyline going on in us that fulfills the sense of me. And we want no deviation from that storyline. So we tell ourselves this ongoing narrative internally, and then we address, and we have a whole system of who we are in relationship to life as it's unfolding, and then we form the facts of the narrative around what we want our narrative to be and how it is to progress. And when somebody gives us direct feedback, that really shakes us because it threatens how the image of the person who's holding the story. Or if the story has to change, like global warming or death and dying, well, that just doesn't, you know, I want this for myself and I want this for my children and I want to have more pleasure, not less pleasure. And that possibility of climate change robs that story of a, of a fulfillment, of its fulfillment. And so I will just deny it. We will alter our story so that that's an inconvenience, that we won't have to, we won't have to listen to ourselves. Now that, Dharma students don't do that. We have to be strong enough. I mean, if we're not there, if we're not willing to do that, who, who, who is? I mean, we have come to this setting you have come to your practice, you have come into your spiritual journey to acquiesce to the facts, to open to the facts, not to distort them. And we have also begun to learn how to adjust our consciousness so that the facts become friendly to us. Facts become friendly. They invite us to see where it is that we're resisting changing our narrative. Where our narrative is more important than the reality we face. That's called suffering. Where what we want to happen isn't in line with what is happening. And so by friendly I don't mean that they're all pleasant. But ultimately, they allow us to adjust to reality so that reality in ourselves is one in the same event, rather than like this. And that's exactly what Dharma is supposed to do. So that it's the same thing. So that we live reality. Don't live in reality. We live reality. That's a verb. And so, how are we going to do that if we constantly protest what it is that we're seeing? I know of no other species that pretends that things don't, aren't happening. <laughs> I mean, that's, a pretty ama that's pretty amazing, really. I mean, what happened was that when we learned how to have an abstract idea about something, we learned to pretend what something was and could be. Right? So we were walking along one day and suddenly we realized we, that stick could be a spear. So we no longer saw it as a stick, we now see it as a spear. And now, then all of a sudden we got excited about the creative influence of abstracting reality to something that would help us be more secure in our living. 
And so we started abstracting everything. Now the problem with abstraction is that it doesn't just move in a positive direction so that you become more secure. It can also negate what is there. It can pretend what is there isn't, as well as pretend what it, it pretends something that something is to be something else. It can also pretend that that something is not. I just won't. I just won't include that. That's an irrelevant fact to where I want to go. And so it's because we can extract that we can also pretend. Right? So denial is really playing upon that functional, that evolutionary function that came to our species some million or so years ago. And of course, what it does is that it makes us think inside that we can rearrange facts to fit our particular need for them. If a fact is showing itself to be inconvenient, we can manage it or change it or adapt to it or evolve it in such a way so that it becomes a convenience. And we're masterful at adaptation. Masterful. Masterful. We're really an adaptive species. But we're not a realized species, and there's a vast difference between those two. So Dharma is facing life on its terms. And denial is the unwillingness to do that. So what does it feel like to deny? You see, it's, it's that argument we have in ourselves for whatever is arising, how we don't want it to arise in the way that it is. That is denial at its very basis core, basic core. It's the flinch. It's the contraction. It's the, it's the stubbornness. It's the demand that we place on it. So how many of you have got it right? You see? Well, this is a fundamental truth. It's been there since we started practicing, some decades ago for some of us. But how many of us have taken it all the way, ridden this thing right on through? Because that fact, when fully realized, that fundamental truth, fundamental Day one, you'll hear that. In fact, yesterday was day one of our beginning class. Out it came. Day one, you hear it. That's the power of denial. That we have lived with it and refused to actually take it deeper to where we have no control. Because that's ultimately what it means. Denial is our assertion, our opinionated assertion upon the fact of life. And we refuse to give up that opinion for the reality that's there. We just aren't going to do it. It's, not going to, it's inconvenient. I, don't, I can do it. I, I don't care what you say. So why is it that we sit like we sit? If it's not, to come to terms with that. Because when I watch people sit and something inconvenient happens in your sitting, I can tell how much denial you're carrying right into your sitting. The door opens or it's too warm in here. <laughs> All the mental expressions of dissonance occurring. That's not meditation. Meditation is adapting to the reality. It's not even adapting to the reality. It's the surrender of our objection to reality. It's the complete release. And yet, years into the practice, we'll still have all oh, this. Meditation should be quieter. Why is he moving? You know, who's opening the door? Don't they know to? It's a constant argument we're having. Even though we know, but haven't realized this is a fundamental truth. This is a fundamental truth. This is where we start the practice. 
So let's bring in death and dying. I'm game. <laughs> so there's a prophecy. Here's a prophecy. Something tragic is going to happen between now and 2112. A tragedy will befall humanity where 7 billion people will die. That's a prophecy. That's a prophecy. Now think of that. I mean, if you read in the paper that 7 billion people were going to die in such and such a time, wouldn't that, wouldn't that get your attention? That's the fact. In 100 years' time, 7 billion people are going to die. Between now and 50,000 B.C., there have been 107 billion people on the face of the earth. 100 billion have died already. But not us. There's a Belgian playwright, and I'll mess up his name, but it's something like Maeterlinck. And he said this, which I, I found to be, how could we possibly know the truth of death when we never look at it? If we look at it at all, it is when we are m most feeble and disoriented. Death is the most luminous and perfect pursuit yet we grant it not one hour of our intelligence. So as we bring this subject in, you can see how entrenched the sense of denial is in us. And I bring it in not, it's not a death and dying talk. It's a, what, is, what are the systems in place in us that refuse to acknowledge it. That's what we're talking about here. We just aren't, this just is, I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit my plans to die. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about functional and dysfunctional denial. Because as a hospice worker, I know that well. There were, Times we used to say when somebody would say, Am I going to die? who's on hospice care? So they've already been given the medical prognosis of that very fact. But their body is what teaches them that they're going to die. We don't have to keep laboring the fact, right? So there's a way that the mind readies itself for those facts. There are many facts that we face in our life that we would just be too overwhelming for our consciousness to open up and have that fact enter. Uh, so uh, I can think of uh, child, childhood trauma, same kind of thing, where it's just too, the emotional upheaval is too, um, too grand for us to just uh, say, okay, I'm dying, I'm going to die. Most people can't do that. So there's a way in which the mind works to adapt itself to that prognosis in death and dying, to work with that issue. And it may take some time. But it can't be philosophical. There's a realization at some point when people are dying that they reach a certain point where they irreversibly see that they are dying. And then their spirit can change immensely. Often it cannot change until there is that realization of that fact. Now that's functional denial. Is the normal evolution of the mind opening to a fact. But there is dysfunctional denial in which we stay so close to the facts, long past its, its skillful use and ability to, to open, we're so close to the fact that the rigidity of the holding ourselves in abeyance to that fact affects not only our life, but those around us. As an example, I was with 
uh, I was a caregiver to a family whose mother was dying. They had two, uh, one preteen and one early teen child, and a husband uh, who would force the mother to get up and do what she normally did when she was healthy, when she was had uh, only a few days to live. So they were, she would fall and they would pick her back up and encourage her to whatever she did, cook or whatever. And you think, you know, how could they have been so cruel? But to them, they, they were just in an absolute state of denial. They just could not have their mother die. You see, you see what we're up against here. You know, when we say change your narrative, yeah, I can change my narrative. Can you? You see, this, is, this isn't just light work. So I was seeing all this in front of me, and I was seeing you know, that she just couldn't do this anymore. And so I called the family together, and I said, look, your mom is dying. And I, would, I did something that normally I would never do, which is to just bring the fact forward, because I could see that this had to be broken. And sure enough, you can imagine what came out of the family when that fact was spoken to them. The eruption, the tears, the sobs, the, just the degree of emotional turbulence. But what it did do is that it changed their relationship to their mother and began to prepare them for the inevitable fact that, in fact, I think she only lived about a week lo longer that if that hadn't been broken, they may have kept that woman, you know, out of the comfort she deserved right up until the end. Now, I don't want to see that happen to our species, and I certainly don't want to see it happen to you within our species. We have to t look at some hard, we have to just do this thing, you know, and we're long since past some of the areas of denial in ourselves where we just refuse to look. This persistent pr problem that keeps occurring with every job I have, with every relationship I have, every time I meet certain circumstances, this comes out of me, and I refuse to take accountability for it. Enough of this. This is insanity. We need to understand how defensive we are we need to understand the power of denial. We need to encourage our awareness into the denial itself, which is like a cast iron stove in its solidity. But like anything, it can't withstand our welcoming. What is this denial? What's going on here? Why do I refuse to look at this? To look at my fragility, to look at my aging, to look at my inevitable dying. When I reached 65, I realized I had outlived every male human on either side of the family for three generations. I turned 65 three days ago. And it's done exactly what you would think it would have done to me. It's like I, nothing is for granted. It, nothing was ever for granted very much in me, but now it's like this breath, is there going to be another one? Who knows? <laughs> it really feels like that. It feels like a cliffhanger. In fact, I had one of the closest occasions of rubs of death that happened in an almost accident just two days ago. That it, it was so serendipity, it was so serendipitous to that time frame that somehow it was the universe playing upon that theme. And so you just, you just, what, the realization that life does not and cannot and will not continue forever. That's one realization. 
But then there's the realization of life may not continue even in this next instant. So where are you going to hold up? You see? Though there's only one place. And it cannot be in denial. Because as soon as I go in that direction, then my life becomes fear-based. Have you noticed that? That we lead with protection, defensiveness. When, it, when we lead with defensiveness, we lead with fear. With fear is the attempt to hold everything steady so that nothing, that everything is safe. And then you begin to see that grasping is exactly that too. It tries to ward off the inevitability. It's a denial in itself. It tries to hold something. I've got it now. You see? If I've got it, if I just clutch at it sufficiently, it won't part from me. It won't leave me. And it's just a denial of the basic fact of the isness of reality, that everything leaves us. That there's no way to be and live in life without being left continually. And yes, mothers and fathers, it means your children, that all relationships end. And it means the end of certainty. Because certainty is an attempt to freeze the conclusion and rest upon the conclusion. But the conclusion is only approximate. It's only temporary. Before the configuration changes and then there is uncertainty. And we put so much stake in certainty. So you can see where our culture rests in terms of denial. It rests in permanency, it rests in fear, it rests in fostering desire and grasping, it rests in opinion and knowledge to make the world secure, which it cannot be. And now we begin to see why themes like global warming which crack the very foundation of that holding, of that system, of the cultural narrative, not just the individual narrative, but the cultural narrative. We've rested our entire way of being upon that, our entire economic system upon that. Of course we're not going to let it happen. It's just a very interesting time that we live in. And then we form laws that are in association with the fixed certainty that we want life to be. Right? Fairness. Well, that's not fair. Where in life is it fair? I mean, life has no... That is... That is a man, a human-made law to try to put everything in order. You shouldn't do this to me. Big fish should not eat small fish. The criminal should die before the saint. The young should never die before the parent. It's not fair, is it? See how we line it all up as a way to keep it so organized, so systematized, I can't feel the fear that just lies on the other side of denial. Death pays no attention to that, does it? To our morality. It pays a lot of attention to our mortality. It pays none to our morality. <coughs> See you soon, we say. See you soon. What assurance do we ever have of that? 
in a few years I'm going to my 50th high school reunion. I expect them to look like they were when they were 18. <laughs> Haven't seen them in 50 years, they better look just the same, right? If they're a geezer like me, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> What's death reveal? How does it break through us, you see, when you realize it? Because when the walls start shaking from that one, from that exposure, they come tumbling down on all levels of exposure, on all forms of denial. You see, if, we, if life depends upon our narrative going forth and death is the end of that narrative, then what place does stillness play in a life that constantly talks to itself to keep it going? We deny it. Let's get out of that way of stillness. Let's put as much distance as we can between ourselves and stillness. And yet t death takes us there. It's the end of noise. That's what death is. It's the end of our narrative. But that may not be, no, said differently, that is not the end of life. It's the end of the form of life, the expression of life, the appearance that life has. But death does something very rich with us as well, for it accentuates the heart. It really establishes connection. If you've ever been in hospice care, and this is at the most gross level, or around someone who had a life-limiting illness, intimacy is often immediate. Where was, what's your name, what do you do, what church do you go to, how are you, what, tell me about your past, all of that's gone, it's blown away. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever spent any time, I used to love the job for that reason alone. There was no getting to know you. Welcome, come in. Connection immediately. That's at the grossest level. As this thing starts working in us, as we begin to release the fears, the graspings, the certainty to which and around which our denial has formed, How do you describe this? How do you describe the whole? How do you describe that? To say that the true life is on the other side of death. How do you just how, how does that how does that make any sense whatsoever? Blessed, Christ said, blessed is the being who came into, to, that came into life before he was born. See, it's just, it's like, what? See, so it's all of a sudden something outside of the paradigm we're in speaks to us. What? That's not within, it's not all contracted. Something... A hand is held up, a song is heard, a bird is heard, listened to. You feel the quiet. You know the safety of everlasting life, again from a Christian reference. Everlasting life. And so I call upon us to really take this seriously, this denial. Explore it. Want to know because our lives depend upon it. To, to 
flush it out, to see where it is, wherever it's going, what is it trying to protect me from? Why am I afraid of what is on the other side of this thing? Why am I afraid of the fact? What's, what's the facts? How's the fact disruptive to the story I'm telling myself? And is it worth it? Am I willing to be touched and let the truth in and feel that very intense precipice where we feel like if we take another step, we'll fall over the cliff, but we can't go back to safe land either? to allow our denial to be touched. And whenever we're reactive, wherever it is we're in protest, there it is. It's not as if it's a hidden secret. It fills our day. And may we all abide and learn from it. Can we be quiet for a minute or two? So if there is an intention in you to know your denial, to know where it is that you defend yourself against the truth, Let that intention surface. Speak it silently to yourself. That's a sure indication that you're on a dharmic path, not a path of comfort, not an adaptive path of comfort. This is not an adaptive path towards more comfort. This is the shattering of delusion. And it can only be done in the privacy of your own inward life. And it has to, you have to have reached a point where you just refuse. You can't, it makes no sense to keep using other people's words to guide you. So if there are any questions or comments. Okay, so you could now you could also get a feeling for the call of the Sangha. Who wants to do this alone? Right? If I have to face that stuff, I'd like to have a neighbor. <laughs> it reminds me of the very tragic story of jumping out of the trade center high floors together holding hands, right? At least let me have some company, right? And I don't mean in any way to, that's, that's a, the human heart that's seeking its form of connection when it faces an inevitable. And so that's what Sangha is, really. That's what, in hospice care, the interdisciplinary team is supposed to be. All of us sitting around the campfire talking about the darkness behind us. But we have to be serious about it. Trivializing it. So questions, comments from anyone? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am.
not denial. You know, you're accepting that things are going to be difficult, or this fact is something you should take on at this moment in time. And whether you should or whether you shouldn't, right? So how do you know when uh, change is in front of you? Whether it's reachable, whether it's something that uh, you can do, or whether you're denying your own uh, your own strengths, your own ability. Many people I see in hospice or, or in uh, uh, meditation deny their own uh, their own strength. In fact, most of us do. Most of us deny our our dharma capability. Because we've just been trained to lean into other people's depend, uh, dependency on other people. We don't feel like we have enough inside to make this thing actually go, to work. Uh, and there, I don't want to get too uh, ethereal here, but in fact there's a deep resonance in us that surfaces when we have kind of reached a bottom uh, in which uh, of a life of pretending that we can't do something when there's a sense in us, a cellular sense in us that we know we can. And especially in Dharma, <clears throat> I can't really uh, address specifically what you're talking about because you didn't give me a, an example. But in Dharma, I can, you know, we we have procrastinated or put off the deep, meaningful lessons often our whole Dharma life. And yet there can be this knowing, knowing of that in a sense that, you know, that, that no one is without these capabilities. If that were so, then the Dharma wouldn't be the Dharma. If anyone wasn't capable of coming to the truth, it would all, it would all be a house of cards. It's all of us or none of us. And so when gathering in spirit, gathering in sangha, feeling one's own confidence of bearing, and being absolutely self-disgusted at how we have given our life away because we're too afraid to try. Some, there's, there's just the perfect storm of stepping out. And as I mentioned, that's what I reached when I was a young monk in Thailand, the perfect storm. But there's that perfect storm has gathered in all of us. We just keep delaying it, delaying its message, delaying its necessary next step. There are a few of us in the room that have had traumatic childhoods who should take their time with the denial and the contraction and the defenses that are there because, as I mentioned, that's functional denial. To let that, to open to those traumatic facts too quickly can be overwhelming. But most of us haven't had that traumatic childhood. And there are virtually nothing inside of us that we can't face. Outside of trauma, which I think is a special category, what memory is there that would just sweep me away. We've all done everything. And we also, when we get feedback, the reason we have such a reaction to the feedback is we know they're right <laughs> about us. They pinned us. And we just want to keep the, the image, the other image going, you know. I know I'm never going to look like a meditation teacher. <laughs> I gave that a long time. It's gone. It's not there in me. You won't find that character. I can't help it. Yes.
there's other explanations for my reactivity other than denial. I don't know. Yeah, there are. There are. She said that, uh, like, certain indications that. Could I ask everybody just to stay in the room unless you have a bus to catch? It's very hard to continue having this meeting if people are getting up and leaving. And so I ask when you come, just stay for the entire time. If you don't need to get home because to relieve a babysitter or some urgency. So thanks. Uh, <laughs> the question was. Uh, Right. Is there okay? Is there a reason for reactivity other than denial? Denial isn't a thing. It's a resistance to hearing the truth. Okay. So it's not a thing in itself. It's just a fear of hearing what is true. So very gently, you take one of those examples, like uh, the boss, your your coworker going behind your back, and you start looking and you feel what's coming up in you and you often feel you know remiss in something or inadequate or did I do something wrong or I'm a mistake or it's a feeling the resistance the reaction comes from not wanting or being afraid of that feeling denying that feeling as a part of our system you see and so when we deny that that emotion or that story plays into our own narrative then when somebody, as long as everything's in order, we can keep that image going. But as soon as we see somebody, you know, then all of a sudden that, the dam breaks. And the resistance and the fear of the protection from that truth begins to break. So, you see? So denial is not, it's just simply a fear of facts, a resistance to facts, not letting a fact in. And it's emotional content, and it's quantifiable content, story, whatever it might be. Yes, sir? Um, when it comes to dealing with uh, the reality of death, um, yes. like, uh, are there ways to prepare ourselves while living to cope with that reality when it arises without going to the extreme of morbid obsession? You know, yes. The exact opposite of yes. pretending you're not going to die. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point, and it's also um, wise in how you spoke about it. He's asking, uh, when working with death and dying, are there ways to prepare that aren't an exaggeration on either end? And uh, an exaggeration of fear or a kind of macho, yeah, I'll, I'll read all the obituaries, and I, I'm not afraid of all that, which is just the same, it's the same pattern, it's just male, right? <laughs> So, yes, there is, but you have, it has to be genuine, it has to be authentic, everything in, in, the, in uh, uh, meditation, dharma has to be authentic. You have to really feel compelled to want to know the subject, not that you should know the subject. If you act on shoulds, you're not ready to know it. But if you feel, I'm, what is going on here? I'm really, what's going on? That's what led me into hospice care. I had no idea... I didn't, I didn't know what death was, and it scared the hell out of me, but I knew I needed to know something about it, and so I felt compelled to, to journey in there. When you have that kind of compelling uh, direction, you'll find ways to begin to allow yourself to be touched by it. You'll notice roadkill. You'll, you'll just take time and start noticing that everything all the time is, has its birth and its ending, and you'll get a sense of the resistance of the ending and the joy of the beginning, you know, and how we sort of load it on one end versus the other. And you just take it on with sensitivity and caring, uh, and you'll find your own way through it, which may or may not be working with the dying directly, uh, but it might be in more working just with the components of the law of impermanence, right? But, but it will be genuine and authentic for you. And we have to... Stop now. I want to thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.